The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Well, if you would, remain standing, and if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would open to Genesis chapter 4 and follow with me as we read our sermon text for this morning. Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I've had a male child with the Lord's help. Now she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And in the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You may be seated. As we invite this morning our ushers to come and collect the giving for the church at Cherrydale, we, as we always do, invite you to turn your attention to missions, to the fruit of these investments, either whether you place your gift in the plates or you give it online. Would the Lord orient your hearts to missions as we're together? And this morning as we pray, we want to uh, invite you to, to pray specifically for our service to one another. Now you ask, well, Matt, that's not really a missionary endeavor. For example, invite you to consider next Saturday morning, one of the widows of our church, Kay Ebner, who lost her husband to cancer uh, here recently, is going to uh, need some yard work done at her house. The rains uh, are wreaking havoc, and we have an opportunity to, to serve as the body of Christ, and give to one another. Next Saturday at 8 a.m. at Kay's house, Brother Bob Gorsuch and others are going to lead a team that are going to provide care for Miss Kay. And you ask, well, Matt, how is something like that indicative of missions? Well, friends, this is the way that Jesus taught us, that the world would know that, that God sent Jesus is the love that we have for one another. As the church acts as the church and loves and serves one another, it gives a compelling picture to the world of what God is like. Oh, this is how the church cares. I commend to you this service opportunity. You can see me or Brother Bob after the service if you can come and give a few hours. No skill required, friends, so even I can do it. 
I will be in Turkey next week, so I will not be doing it, but uh, commend you to do it, commend you to bring your family, your children even, and uh, lay some sod to serve a sister in Christ and as a demonstration of the love that the church has for one another, and in turn, the watching world would see that and be drawn to Christ. Let's pray to that end this morning, and then we'll turn our attention to Genesis 4. So, Father, we do bow, asking that you would increase our appetite to love and care for one another. We recognize that every power in this world, every power even intrinsic to us, teaches us to care about our own needs, to be consumed with ourselves. We need your spirit to give us eyes that can look beyond ourselves, to care for others, to love and serve, even when perhaps we would rather sleep in and feast on our own appetites. We ask that you would give us a greater capacity to care, and in turn that you would paint a compelling picture for the world, for the way that God's people care for one another, and in turn those who are apart from Christ and apart from the church would be drawn to this type of community. This morning, would you increase our appetite for your word? Would your spirit have its provoking effect among us as we consider the truths of your scripture from Genesis 4? We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our journey through a series opening statement that is uh, looking at the first 11 chapters and Uh, We'll put our toe in the water of Genesis 12, Genesis 1 through 11 primarily. And if you're you're like, well, what is the main theme or what are we driving at here? You might might think of the etymology or the origin of the, the word Genesis very similar to where we get our word genes or genetics, And in a real sense, the life that you live, your personality, your physical characteristics are an outworking of this genetic code that was imprinted on you from from your your birth forward, right? So, So all of our lives then are the outworking of this genetic code that's hardwired into who we are as individuals, Well, in the very same way, I'm suggesting to us that all of the Bible's story, and in fact, all of human history, is an outworking of the genetic code that we find in Genesis 1 through 11. This sets for us the pattern of human sin and God's work to save sinners and put the world back together again. And if you understand the genetic code from Genesis 1 through 11, the Bible begins to make a lot of sense. It fits together quite nicely, and we have a greater capacity to interpret the lives that we live and the complexity of our world. Now, as we move from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4 this morning, let me um, suggest for you that Genesis 4, even what we just read, presents a whole host of questions, doesn't it? We see people taking wives and settling cities, and we think, well, where'd they come from, right? How did this whole thing get here? What we're going to see in Genesis 4 is very critical for our understanding and reading of all of the Bible, and it is to understand this, that the biblical authors are highly selective in a way that confounds a modern reader of Scripture because we read Genesis 4 and we have a whole host of questions, complexities, things that we don't understand that it seems that the biblical authors just didn't intend to tell us. And friends, that's the exact point, right? The biblical authors are going to do for us a selective reading of God's work in redemptive history in order to highlight for us the themes, the main points that are essential for understanding how God is going to save sinners and put the world back together. And if you you don't kind of get over this stumbling block, you're going to get bogged down as a Bible reader. 
And that is, the Bible is not going to answer every question that you have. It's simply not. And this morning's text is not going to answer every question that we have, but it is going to bubble to the surface for us some key points about two main kind of parallel threads. And that is, on the one hand, the nature and spread of human sin, and on the other hand, the nature and character of God. And these two parallel tracks run straight through all of the Bible. All the stories that we see, even just recently in the church at Cherdale, we've been in the book of Judges, considering the outworking of people who did what were right in their own eyes. Well, friends, this is a parallel track of the spread of sin from Genesis 3 forward. We want to consider those two main highways. What can we learn about the spread of sin and what can we learn about the nature and character of God as we look at Genesis chapter 4. We begin that in verses 1 and 2 where we see the man, Adam, and Eve conceiving and giving birth to Cain. And then this description that there's a male child with the Lord's help. Then we get some description of the occupations of these two boys, who is certainly Eve is doing what moms have done throughout history, like giving praise to God for the birth of a child. But there, it's clear that there's more going on here. There's a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. There's the continuation of God's promise that there's going to be a seed from Eve that's going to come, that's going to right the effects of Genesis 3. But here at the outset, we see this tension, the outworking of the curse, as these two young men come and present an offering, I'll reread verses 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but the Lord did not have regard for Cain and his offering. And so Cain was furious and he looked despondent. We're introduced to this tension. We're, we're not told here when God commended to them this worshipful offering. We're merely told that people brought an offering, these two brought an offering of worship to God. And quite frankly, we're also given very cryptic description of why God had regard for one and not the other. Some suggest that this disregard is indicative of the ground that is now cursed, producing fruit, and therefore God's disregard for what the cursed ground produces as opposed to the flocks. I think that's reading more into the text than is demonstrated here and certainly is not descriptive of the fact that God commends Adam to work the ground even though it is cursed. Some suggest that this is God's particular uh, prioritization of certain vocations as opposed to others, the shepherd as opposed to the gardener. Frankly, that seems to not account for the holistic orientation of God's work in the world and God commending again Adam to work the ground. Some suggest that God's regard for one as opposed to the other is an early precursor to God's prioritization of blood sacrifice. Well, clearly one chose wisely because he brought the, the blood of an animal versus the grain from the field. Again, I think this is us reading latter biblical instruction into the Old Testament text. While that could be there, we're certainly given no indication that that's what's going on in the passage. When we come to these interpretive junctures, we're like, I'm not really sure what's going on. One of the best ways to interpret biblical text is with other biblical text. To ask the question, does the Bible speak of this anywhere else? 
And in fact, just a little bit of uh, work with the, the back of your Bible would indicate that, yes, the Bible does speak of this somewhere else. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. And you might as well turn there and kind of keep your finger because we're going to return to uh, the surrounding text here uh, near the end of the sermon. In Hebrews 11, chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know, uh, highlights for us a, a hall of fame description of people who are caught up in God's redemptive story and have special role in this story. And there, right at the outset of his hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11, the writer says this. This is Hebrews 11:4. if you're taking notes. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than did Cain. By faith, he was approved as a righteous man because God approved his gifts. Even though he is still dead, he still speaks through his faith. So using latter biblical authors to help us interpret a previous passage, we would say that whatever is going on here and God's choice of one as opposed to another was because... One worship was offered to God as an act of faith, whereas the other was, was not. Now, what form this faith took, we're, we're not told. I do think that it, it could be the case that Adam and Eve, seeing the covering that God gives in Genesis 3, 20 and 21, would clearly have told their children, this is how God, this is the pattern of how God is going to cover human sin. And so the bringing of a blood sacrifice there by one and not the other could be indicative of this faith that the author of Hebrews speaks of. He acted in faith that God's promise would be enacted through human history. I think the author in Genesis 4 also gives us a clue. If you look at verse 4 there in Genesis 4, right? actually going back to, to verse 3, Cain is described as presenting some of the land's produce, whereas in verse 4, Abel presents an offering, but here the description is more specific, some of the firstborn. So we see one who presents from the grain giving some of the offering and the other who presents the animal sacrifice not merely giving some, but giving the firstborn among this. I think the description here of the worship that is offered to God is indicative of one who has faith and offers the very best of the sacrifice to God as opposed to one who's described as merely bringing something to God. I, I, I think there's something to be said for this pattern that is set for one bringing the first and trust of God's further fulfillment of his promises. If I bring the first, I'm acting in trust that I can sacrifice this because God's going to provide. If I merely bring some, it's not a demonstration of faith. And so the latter biblical authors are going to commend to us our offering of the first the best as a worshipful offering to God. But again, whatever we do with that, whether it's a prefiguring of substitutionary sacrifice or the offering of the first fruits, we're told very clearly God makes a choice. He has regard for one and not for the other. What is important for the biblical authors in Genesis 4 is not why, why God preferred one as opposed to the other, but how this one responded to God's actions here. And particularly, as you note from the reading of this passage, it's not even equally spent between Cain and Abel. The focus here is clearly on Cain and his response to God's choice, clearly highlighting that Cain serves as a 
personification, a, a picture for us of the spread of human sin. It's as if the author is saying, you want to see the consequences of Genesis 3? Look at Cain. I want you to notice four truths we see about the spread of sin from looking at Cain. These are indicated clearly in verses 6 and 7, a passage that is worthy of increased meditation among the people of God. Cain is asked by the Lord, why are you furious? Why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? Or here the, the nature of the language is, won't your face be lifted up? Your face is downcast, you're despondent. If you do what is right, clearly indicating again that whatever Cain offered wasn't right. Okay, so he clearly did something in aberration to God's directives, though we're not told exactly what it is. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What do we learn about the nature of sin from this exhortation from God first is that sin minimizes itself. Sin minimizes itself. The picture here could not be more compelling, right? It's of an, an animal, perhaps, We've all watched enough uh, Nature Channel to have a picture for this playing out in our head, right? The crouching lion or leopard, an animal of prey that is crouching down, hiding itself, minimizing itself, but all the while stalking the animal that is merely grazing in the field. Here, the, the picture is kind of juxtaposing two images not merely the animal that's crouching, but the one who's lurking behind the door. I know none of you have watched a horror movie, nor have I, but assume that you had, and you know the scene that's pictured here, right? The, the, the person who's walking around a corner, and the, the, the one who's broken into the home is, is hiding behind the door, and the music builds as your heart rate builds, and you're like, don't go there! right? This is going to go bad. Well, what's happening to the crouching animal or the burglar hiding behind the door? Both are working in an attempt to minimize themselves, right? To make themselves low before they pounce on their prey. And this is what sin does, friends. It minimizes itself. It minimizes itself culturally currently, I mean, you, you, you want something to brush against cultural sensitivities? Speak of sin. Even the notion of objective right and wrong is considered out of bounds in our culture. So the, the notion of sin crouches. Not that big of a deal. It's merely your personal preferences. It's merely the way that you were raised or it's merely your biological kind of inbred nature. So it minimizes itself, but perhaps more, more critically for our consideration, personally, it minimizes itself. This is how sin always begins. It begins by crouching. It hides. And like a crouching animal, we who are feasting on our own appetites in the field are easily led to believe that it's not there. It's not worthy of consideration. It's not going to do great harm to us. Sin, as C.S. Lewis says, is often shy at the start. It doesn't draw attention to, himself, to itself. It presents the bait and hides the hook for us. What is critical for our assumptions about sin from this passage is to realize that none of us escape the crouching power of sin. We all have sin that is crouching. Now, it's going to be different for all of us. The animal of prey is going to be different. But what we can learn to bubble to the surface from this passage is being aware of 
the sin that does easily crouch because of idea number two about the, the, the nature of sin, and that it is this, that sin has surprising power. The language here is that it desires to master you. It desires to take over you, or in the CSB translation, just simply, its desire is for you. I choose the language of the surprising power of sin, not to indicate that we should be surprised by it, because those of us who have dabbled with sin long enough are aware of the power of sin, but yet it is still a bit, for, for all of us, surprising how something that seems to crouch so innocently can master us. This is why the pictures of sin as slavery are told throughout the Bible, that, that sin has a mastery over us, or we might use the, just the language of a habit, right? We engage in this innocent sin such that it takes on a life of its own and crushes us. You might think of something simple like bitterness to a brother or sister. How quickly something like bitterness, a sideways word, played out over a decade of life, creates a persona, a person who is just bitter. Or, or the innocent, I'm using quote fingers, sin of worry, right? How that takes on a life of its own and masters us in ways that we look back and say, how did that happen? Well, God is giving us an indication of the how did that happen here in Genesis 4. This is the nature of sin. Sin is not merely an action. It is a power that acts on us as we act in it. And it has, friends, a crushing effect on our lives. And then verse 8 the story here, really, I mean, the, the, if we were in an opening statement scene in a courtroom, I mean, verse 8 is the action, right? Cain says to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field, and while they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother and he killed him. But the biblical author records that almost as like a passing aside, right? I mean, it's one verse, and it's told quickly, and it's just told practically. I think this helps us see idea number three about the nature of sin, and it is this, that sin always spreads. Sin always spreads. It minimizes itself at the start, it's got surprising power, and then it takes on a head of steam and spreads. Consider merely the spread from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, verse 8. The act of de-godding God of Adam and Eve in the garden has now spread to their children, and they're watching the first murder play out. Or if you look over in verse 17 and following, we see the continued work of the spread of sin. Verse 17, Cain is intimate with his wife, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Enoch. And then paralleling what we're going to see in all of Genesis chapter 5, we have this tracing of the, the line and the spread of this generation of personifications of sin. And in biblical literature, there's significance to everything, really, but particularly to numbers. And if you count for us, both the counting of the numbers and the uh, robust description that's used here help us see what the author wants us to focus on. If you count seven numbers down from Cain, we get to verse 23, which our biblical authors thankfully have set out for us to highlight what's going on here. Lamech, the seventh child of Cain, or the seventh generation down, I'm sorry, from Cain, said to his wives, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words, for I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged seven times over, then for Lamech it will be 70 times seven. 
Well, we see the spread of sin here, once again indicated in the seventh generation from Cain, Lamech, who demonstrates the spread of sin here by oppression. We have the first mention of polygamy in the scriptures. Clearly an aberration to God's design, but practiced throughout much of the Old Testament. God's design for one man, one woman to come together in lifelong commitments here. Two wives, uh, and history would attest to the fact that polygamy is always a terrible idea, right? It's always oppressive. This is what we see played out. And then violence, the spread of violence. The language here is interesting. It's hard to pick up in our English translations, but, but Lamech taunts a, a young man, or in the, the Hebrew, the, the description here is a, a, of a child who wounded him, like struck him, bruised him. It's a picture, honestly, of Genesis 3.15, the one who would bruise, just strike, wound. And what does Lamech say? I mean, he does way more than doubles down on this thing. He ups it a hundred times over. I'm going to kill a man. I'm going to kill a child who bruised me. I'll avenge myself 70 times seven. Talk about turning up the temperature and demonstrating the spread of sin and the contamination of this filth. And friends, this is why the spread of sin is why it is so important that we understand verses 6 and 7 and that we're ruthless in taking note of the crouching sin and removing it from our lives. I mean, friends, who among us, if the doctor says... You have cancer invading your body. And it is aggressive. It is going to spread and take over and kill you. It has power and and aggressive spread. Who among us is going to say, I don't need treatment? That doesn't really matter. No, we're going to recognize the power and the spread. We're going to say, I'll do whatever to address that. Well, friends, why don't we have that same approach to sin in our lives? When a brother or sister in our small group asks us and says, that response, that action, seems to be indicative of envy in your heart, and yet we say, ah, You guys ought to pray for me, but then do very little to attack what is, we're told in Genesis 4, something that is going to take over and demonstrate itself in the foolishness of Lamech, upping the power of sin. And then consider verses 11 and 12, the last reality. He said, God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And then in a a pattern very familiar in Genesis 3, you're cursed, you're alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. We see this curse but before we're doled out the curses, we're once, again into, uh, we're once again introduced to a God who comes with questions. And in verse 9, he asks, where is your brother Abel? And in a demonstration of the faithless posture of this one, the flippant reply, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Sin, lastly, refuses repentance. It refuses repentance. This one who is asked by God and given the offer of repentance says, I don't know where he is. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, what is the very thing that God's made Adam and Eve to be in the garden? Genesis 2, verse 15, he's made them to work and keep the garden. Clearly, if God put them in the garden to work and keep it, He made them responsible for being keepers of all that the garden produced, first and foremost. 
the result of their reproduction, their multiplication. So clearly, he is his brother's keeper. But he ups the ante in response to God and says, refusing repentance, I'm not my brother's keeper, demonstrating a bowed upness to God that refuses to humble himself. This, friends, could be the totality of the story in Genesis 4. We would be right to see and to trace the outworking of sin from Genesis 3 and see sin's minimization, its power, its spread, and its refusal to repent. But the good news of the biblical story is that everywhere you meet the heinous nature of sin, you also encounter the gracious character of God. And this is equally true in Genesis chapter 4, at least in three principal ways. First, in verses 9 and 10, we see a God who invites repentance. We noticed in the spread of sin that sin refuses repentance, but see, friends, the beauty of a God who comes in grace and invites repentance. It's interesting to me that the if you were to isolate, like, where's the, the, the big sin in Genesis 4? Most of you are going to pinpoint the, the murder, Cain killing Abel. This is the big sin. But notice where God comes and speaks in this story. He comes and speaks before the outworking of verse 8. He, in verse 6, sees a furious, despondent Cain and comes to him and says, why are you that way? And in verse 7, he gives him the grace of a warning. He tells him exactly what's going to happen in verses 8 and following. He says, sin is crouching. Its desire is to have you. But he gives him an offer of hope, right? Consider the grace of God that doesn't come to this one for whom he's rejected his worship offering. Clearly, Cain has sinned here in some form or fashion. And he doesn't come and say, Cain, bro, you've blown it. Cursed are you. Like, we could have that pattern following here. But rather, we have a gracious God who comes in a time of trial and tempting and gives an offer of repentance, gives a, a way out to Cain. And as he did in the garden, he calls to this one, where are you? What is this that you have done? And as we indicated last week, when God asks you a question, God never asks a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's not working to understand you. He's asking the question so that you understand you. So the questions that are posed in three and four are meant to cause Cain to reflect on the selfishness that caused his worship aberration in the first place and make a different decision here in the second place. But this is not what Cain does and yet, even again, after the killing, notice in verse 15, Cain responds to God, my punishment is too great to bear. I'm going to be cast out, I'm going to be a wonder, and somebody's going to kill me. And you think, well, I mean, big deal, right? Let's, let's say Cain's 20, I don't know. And uh, he's got 30 or 40, 50 years to, to wonder. I mean, that seems like, but uh, we, we recognize that we, we got some hundreds of year life expectancy going on here at the time, right? So we're talking 900 years or so that our brother's just going to be wondering with the murder hanging over him. He says, I'm, I, I'm as good as dead. And what does God do? I mean, quite frankly, this is the verse of this whole chapter that makes the least sense to me. At least for mentally comprehending it, it does make sense. 
because I read on the nature and character of God, but God marks him. In whatever case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. He placed a mark on Cain that, so that whoever found him would not kill him. Notice the extreme love of God to this unrepentant sinner here. He marks him. Now we read that. I mean, you know, it's, it's our first biblical tattoo here, right? He, he mark, we're not even told what the mark is, but whatever is the mark, it's not a mark of curse. It's a mark of love. He says, I'm going to tag you and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to care for you. What kind of love from God to mark an unrepentant murderer for his protection and care? This is the extent of God's love for unrepentant sinners among us. The demonstration of God's gracious love and care. And friends, this informs even our acts of neighbor love. To see that those whom we might be prone to mark for all the wrong reasons should rather be marked as objects of love, of care, of pursuit. That in contrast to our culture, I can say at one and the same time, what you are doing is wrong and a moral offense to a holy God, and yet I love you. The tension of that makes no sense in our modern culture, but to the biblical notion, it makes all the sense in the world because this is what we see demonstrated by our great God. He marks this one. And then consider lastly, in verse 25, we have the return back to Adam, who is intimate with his wife again, and she gives birth to a son, and she names him Seth. For God, for she said, God has given me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed Abel. A son was also born to Seth, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The last point about the character, nature and character of God is God keeps his promise. In verse 25 and 26, we see the bubbling up of the theme throughout the book of Genesis the seed is protected. The promise is still intact. And interestingly, it's intact in a super weird way. It's supposed to be the firstborn, right? It's supposed to be Cain who receives this promise and does these great things. But here it's the, the thirdborn, <laughs> right? After the lineage of sin is played out with Cain and Abel, we have God giving a, a, another, Seth, who is the transmitter of the promises of God, even amidst the grotesque spread of sin. And Seth ushers in for us this new line of humanity that though sin spreads, verses 17 and following, there's a new people who do something different. They start to call on the name of the Lord. Over here in the city of Lamech, they do some really good things, if you read that passage. They create music and arts and culture. They build cities. But as we're going to see working out in Genesis 6 and then clearly in Genesis 11, what are they building cities to? They're building cities that call on their name to make a name for themselves. This is the line of Cain, the one who selfishly holds and doesn't give, the one who wants his own, and rather than humbling himself in repentance, bows up to God. Well, that creates a culture of people who create a name for themselves, and juxtaposed to that, or in opposition to that, intention to that, is a subculture, a remnant, 
a small subset of humanity that calls on the name of the Lord. In a very real way, we have the basis of the New Testament church all the way back here in Genesis 4. As to this day, we, friends, are the city in every city. The city in those who build a name for themselves who say, I'm not concerned with a name for myself. What I'm concerned is a great name for God. I want to be a city set on a hill that can't be hidden in every city. Those who let my light shine, not for my name, but rather for God's great name. We, friends, are the lineage of Seth, who see the nature and character of God, the fulfillment of God's promises, the receivers of the outworking of Genesis 3.15, the heirs of the good promises of Jesus. And we can declare the nature and character of God and call on his name. Why? One, one final passage and we're done. Look in Hebrews 12. I told you we would return there. In Hebrews 12, the author once again spins us back to this story. It seems minor. But here, the author says, I'm going to commend it in the Hall of Fame of Faith, this one who offered a better sacrifice, and I'm going to point to it again in verse 24, Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, we're picking up in the middle of an argument that he's merely commending Jesus as better than everything else. The mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. What's the blood of Abel doing? What's it saying? Well, God tells us what it's saying in Genesis 4. It's saying I want justice, right? It cries out to God for justice. And the author of Hebrews says, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word to God. It cries out to God a better promise. Why, friends? Well, 1 John 1, 9 and other passages are going to be indicative of this. If we confess our sins, proclaim him as Lord. He's faithful and what's our word here? Just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here, Tim Keller helps my thought. He says, note in that passage that, that the language isn't he is faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, to those who've been saved by Jesus' blood, he has already demonstrated mercy to you by substituting Christ on the cross. He's already demonstrated mercy to you. So were we to get to final eternity and kind of as we think about this, uh, I sin and Jesus is proclaiming to God, Hey, God, show Matt mercy. Like, forgive him again. He's, he, 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 he's broken. Forgive him. He says, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's already said that. And to hold out once again the act of mercy would be to two substitutes for the same sin. Rather, he's saying, God, act in your justice. You've already said what your blood is going to do. It's going to forgive those that you have saved. You've already declared what your blood is successful at orchestrating for your people. So may your blood do the same thing that the blood of Abel did so long ago, and that is cry out for justice to those who are saved in that blood. Would you show them the extent of your love? Would you do what you have promised to do? which is perfectly enact your judgment, which, friends, he poured out on Jesus and not on you. That's why it's a better word. It's asking for the same thing, but it's appealing to a different source. And friends, if you have not received 
the offer of that better word, it's either you or Jesus. Because you stand in the line of Cain, and lest you repent of your sins and humble yourself in faith, you will never receive that better word that Jesus proclaims over us. If you're here and you haven't received that, what better day than today? A God who says, where are you? And offers you the invitation of repentance and faith. Would you come to him in saving faith? Those of us who have received that grace gift, may we respond in joyful celebration at one who today speaks a better word by the blood of Christ over his people. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we bow in thankful adoration for one who has already declared his great love to those who have faith in Christ. You have shown us great mercy because you poured out your wrath on your son. And today, it it causes our hearts to well with praise as we reflect on the fact that we are justly forgiven because of Christ's better word, because of better blood. We thank you for the goodness, the sweet truth of Jesus Christ who gives us an alternative path to the spread and contamination of sin. May our growing worship and praise for Jesus cause sin to grow increasingly distasteful. May we humble ourselves in repentance and fling ourselves wildly on a merciful God. We ask for his sake.